I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Today we're talking about the future, about creating a world we haven't yet seen and a future that hasn't yet been imagined. We're talking about outside the box thinking, dreaming, playing and experimenting. There are many people who are future facing, who are exploring and pushing the realms and confines of what's possible. Think of sci-fi, the Stan Lees and Marvel comics, the scientists and inventors, quantum computing, people working in robotics or 3D printing. I'm talking AI, living on Mars, the Elon Musks, the Will I Ams, my guest earlier this season, BT Wolf, who uses technology to push what's possible in our musical experiences. She sent her music to space and has contributed to pioneering dementia research. At times, they may seem eccentric to us, but actually there's something they've tapped into that we haven't understood yet. What's that phrase? It seems impossible until it's done. And in the realm of sustainability and renewable materials and architecture and design, there's my guest today, Ella Rahadi, who is pushing the realms of possibility with bamboo. Because every pole is varied and its contour is unique, you can't predict which way it'll curve. Balinese craftsmanship and their familiarity with bamboo from a young age and um, their skill over the past decade of working with us to develop new techniques means that that's entirely why it's possible to build buildings the way we have and to keep elaborating on them and expanding the systems that we use. It's really interconnected. Mm -hmm. The thing is, though, that bamboo has a much bigger future around the world. Mm -hmm. And once it's possible to create joint systems and connection systems that are beautiful and make sense for bamboo, but also don't require craftsmanship, that's when you'll really see bamboo being able to be used in so many ways, remembering its strengths and the beauty that it has to offer that's different than timber. I first learned about Ellera and the work she does with design and architecture firm she founded, Ibuku, on Apple TV series Home. These breathtaking otherworldly cities made entirely out of bamboo. Born in Toronto, Canada, but grew up in Bali, Ellera has a background in fine art and used to work for fashion designer Donna Karen. We talk about how not having any formal architectural training actually helped Ellera to work outside the traditional confines of architecture, yet with a respect for craft, study and skill, and how this helped to push the envelope of what's possible in architectural design. And so all of those things tie in with what I do. I honestly feel like I'm in a constant state of education, <laughs> being, being, learning from all directions. I mean, it's kind of, I think, a, a natural thing in entrepreneurship to, to feel that way, but we're literally using a material that, that is, has never been used in this way and defies all of the basic parameters that, that most of the design and construction world have decided they require of a building material that they'll use. We talk about the qualities of bamboo, Bamboo is a new form of renewable material and replacement for fossil fuels. We talk about the process that goes into designing these otherworldly structures in the lush Balinese landscape, about serving materials and the surrounding environment rather than using these materials to serve us. I really wonder about the approach when you're working with a material. I feel like often the material is being used in service of a design idea 
rather than a brilliant designer being in service of the expression of a material in a way that can connect that material with with people. We talk about shelter and space and our interconnectedness with nature and each other. We also talk about her five-year-old son's love of loud instrumental rock music. At one point on the way to school, I was like, I want to listen to music on the way to school. And like, he always shuts down what I decide to play. So let me just ask him. I was like, do you have an idea of what you want to listen to? Mm. And he said, electric guitar music, loud, no voices. During the course of the interview, we had some issues with Wi-Fi connectivity and got cut off a few times. So Ella kindly allowed me to interview her a second time. So what you'll hear is two interviews merged together. Ella Hardy, thank you so much for taking the time out to um, come and speak with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, I discovered what you your incredible work. I was watching the series Home on Apple TV and I couldn't get over that somebody had built these houses that felt like a a magical they're like magical and playful and delightful but really complex all at the same time so I would love for you to tell me how you went from being born in Canada growing up in Bali doing fine art working for Donna Karen and then suddenly making these majestic bamboo buildings so I fall fell into this um wild world when I came home um one break while I was working in New York and I saw what my um, dad and stepmom had been creating at Green School. Mm -hmm. So Green School Bali had just been built and it was um, one of the first projects that really used bamboo in imaginative ways. Um, It it was building on some amazing um, pioneers before it around the world, there had just been a little scattering of like bamboo exploration. And dad just really jumped on, jumped on the bamboo bandwagon and decided that he wanted to build the entire school they were creating out of bamboo. And that every space just had to fit into the landscape and swirl and soar and like inspire. So he took that stand, they took that stand to create the school Um, And I saw it and I just said, wow, like, what is happening here? Mm. I had um, dabbled in the idea of maybe uh, studying architecture years before, a few years before. Mm -hmm. And I was told it was much, it was much too hard and much too boring. So I shouldn't bother. So I didn't. And that was that. And I was still seeking meaning and purpose. And, and I had, as a fine artist, I had failed to commit to a material I went from literally from ceramic sculpture to super eight film (laughs) Um, and like, and all over the place. And suddenly um, I realized that if I wanted to be involved in, in, uh, in, in a material that was good for the future, that nothing could beat bamboo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if you could make beautiful spaces out of it, then I wanted to be part of that. So I simply just joined because I was inspired and I wanted to be part of it. Fantastic. And, you know, what I didn't realise, and, you know, everybody must go back and watch this home series and particularly your episode, that some of the houses that you had built, the bamboo had only existed four years prior. So bamboo is harvested, should be harvested, when it's three or four or five or maybe six years old at the most. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, by the time, it depends on the bamboo species, of course, but by the time most bamboo is a decade old, it's already disintegrating again into the, into the forest and releasing its carbon that it has sequestered for its lifetime. Mm-hmm. So there's a window, right? Depends on the species, but there's a window that's the, that's the right mature bamboo to harvest. Yeah. So every, every bamboo structure where the bamboo is properly selected um, didn't exist three or four or five years before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just amazing visual to recognize because mostly we're building with fossil fuels yeah. or like rainforest timber that took hundreds of years. So it's just like irrepressible, bountiful, incredible resource. Yeah, totally. And um, in terms of 
I would have thought, you, you know, somewhere like Bali, I can totally understand why bamboo makes sense because it's, it's a tropical country. Is it a, how do you, you know, in terms of like sort of fire resistance and so that the bamboo doesn't rot, all of that kind of stuff, how does that, yeah, how does that work? How do you treat it so that it sort of lasts? Well, obviously, to be able to build the kind of structures and invest the time and care and the craftsmanship to create what we have so far, we um, the first the first key to that was to was to properly treat the material. And in the simplest terms, bamboo is a grass. It has sweet sap running through it. Um, yeah, so it's it's just like a feast for for insects to to get in there and eat it. And if you can get the sweet sap out and salt in then there's nothing to be eaten. Right. So if you can soak it in a natural salt solution, uh, traditionally in, in, in Indonesia at least, but I believe around the world, you would soak it in the sea or even in the river or in the mud to let the sugars leach out. You would harvest it at the time of the moon when the sugar content was the lowest. Mm -hmm. You could do these measures traditionally to try to minimize the, the sweetness in it, but it was really hard to, to control. And like a decade ago and, and before that, Linda Garland spent years here in Bali promoting and developing treatment techniques that were natural and safe. She was friends with my dad, John Hardy. My dad was, um, was, a, was a woodman. He likes to say he loves some rainforest timber. <laughs> <laughs> but his friend Linda kept talking about bamboo. And finally, one day he listened and she had this natural salt solution based on a boron borax method. Um, there's several in the world now that people use, and that just gives you timber that you can rely on. So the buildings that we're building should last um, for as long as a well-cared-for wooden house. So decades, centuries, potentially, um, there's, no, there's no bug that's gonna eat it because it's salty. Right. And then the rest of it depends on the design, designing for it properly to protect it from rain falling on it directly, from um, too much UV exposure. And so that's our job as designers is to, um, to protect it properly in the design. So tell me a little bit about Ibuku. I was looking on, this is your architectural and design firm. I was looking on the website what amazes me is how do you come up with these structures that look like something somebody's dreamed in their head? Because they're very curvy, linear. They're not, you know, traditional houses tend to be sort of rectangular, square, straight edges. And you have these sort of, they look like cities on, um, like in tree canopies. That's the only way I can describe it. They're so <laughs> beautiful and so playful i don't know they really bring about joy you know so i'd love for you to explain to me the process through which you know you have this idea and then suddenly it becomes this incredible city in the trees you know so we love to play but we actually try to hold back on the dreaming on the designing on the artistic individual um intention around it mm -hmm. and what we really try to do is that we try to listen right so what what creates the forums of um of many of our buildings is actually that they are on very unique sites mm -hmm. um, a lot of the land that we've been building on especially in bali is like steep riverside contoured land mm -hmm. and we didn't want to disturb it we didn't want to add retaining walls to the natural terraces where we didn't need to so we were literally like dreaming into the constraints of the site, into the contours of the site and the curves to a large extent come from there. When we have the impulse to let's make it a lotus, let's make it a seashell. Mm -hmm. We try to hold back on that mm -hmm. because the site and or when it's not on a site that is, that has a lot of character to drive it, mm -hmm. we look to like the person's experience inside of it. If it's a yoga shala, what kind of space would best hold you to do that kind of yoga? If it's a badminton court or a gym, how do you want that building to be so that your body can feel the way you want it to feel doing that activity? 
if it's a cozy bedroom and the view is that way, how should it curve around you? So we really try to listen more than design. Ultimately, you, you got to play too, right? You got to add, you got to, you got to bend it a little to your, to your um, imagination, but um, it's really easy to overdo it. Mm. It's really easy to get caught up in your own hand sketching on the paper, especially as a designer. You just love that, like that act of creation and like self-expression. But I don't think that's the way to come up with something that belongs in the place where it is right. and makes the people within it in the future feel the way that you want to help them feel. Fantastic. So, so there's a lot of sort of responding to the needs of the space rather than just sort of going through going with the biggest fantasy in your head actually yeah we um you know we all want to fantasize and dream and we might sketch a bit um and we'll, we'll pull from ideas but it's it's better to do that next it's better first to just like zoom in on what feel even with you're on a certain site like what what part of that site is the best place to feel the way you want to feel at the time of day or doing whatever activity is that you're doing mm-hmm. in that space? So you can array, like compose the whole, the whole arrangement based on that. From there, you might like, you might draw on natural forms or, or not natural forms, anything. You might draw on any form that you can think of to help express what you're trying to express because you've got to talk about it with a team, right? Mm-hmm. No one is ever the individual designer, the individual creator of a space. Mm-hmm. As you're working on it as a team, you've got to like be able to talk about it, draw it, model it mm-hmm. in three dimensions or in the computer. You've got to start putting it together to share it. That's where we actually end up talking about um, lotus flowers and shells. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being the story, right? If you're like, if someone's writing a little blurb about the house, they're like, it's inspired by a lotus flower, but it's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> It's expressed by a lotus flower along the way, but that can't be where it comes from. It has to come from inside the, inside our souls. No, it has to come from inside the, the person who goes through it. Yeah. So I'm just trying to imagine like your team and how you work together. How big is your team? Um, so the, my team size varies depending on what projects that what projects we have Mm -hmm. Um, but a team that's working on an individual project probably has maybe between three and five designers and artists and model makers on it Mm -hmm. Um, and that varies depending on the size of the project too Mm -hmm. but there's always at least um, three people involved sometimes as many as six Mm -hmm. and that's not counting the input that the craftsmen have that the, the site team has really valuable like design input because so much of the detailing and the craftsmanship um, also has to be either improvised or revised on site based on the like, natural variation of the material. Yeah. Uh, it's it's interesting because um, I was telling a friend of mine that I was speak, going to be speaking with you and he um, works in Indonesia, but he makes clothes. And he was just talking about the the level of craftsmanship in Bali, like how incredible it is. So yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Well, because... That because every pole is varied and its contour is unique, you can't predict which way it'll curve. Mm-hmm. Balinese craftsmanship and their familiarity with bamboo from a young age and um, their skill over the past decade of working with us um, in Bali to develop new techniques means that that's entirely why it's possible to build buildings the way we have and to, and to keep elaborating on them and expanding the systems that we use. So it's really like... It's really interconnected. Skilled craftsmanship is not a very replicable yeah. skill. Even the guys here in Bali who grew up working with bamboo in the village mm-hmm. to create all sorts of temporary, like temporary use objects of daily life, they like train for three years under a master craftsman to be able to be very useful on job site. And there's like amazing master craftsmen in Germany, but like how are you gonna afford them to like connect every piece of bamboo in your structure? The thing is, though, that bamboo has a much bigger future around the world. Mm. And once it's possible to create joint systems and connection systems um, that are beautiful and make sense for bamboo, but also don't require craftsmanship, Mm. that's when you'll really see bamboo being able to be used in so many ways. That might also mean slicing it up and um, sort of conforming it a little bit, making it into a regular shape, perhaps laminating it. 
But I, but as all of that happens, I really want to see people work with it, remembering its strengths and the beauty that it has to offer that's different than timber. Mm-hmm. It's an easy timber replacement. You've probably bought a bamboo chopping board at some point, right? <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just a more sustainable, quick solution. But, but I want to see how it can be used uh, for its flexibility. Mm-hmm. But it can be, it, it will be used in so many ways that look so different than what we've already created um, because it should look different in different parts of the world. Yeah. I really look forward to seeing that, like the different technologies that are developed, the different design aesthetics that come about yeah. to create a whole new language for it in every place. Absolutely. And, and even, you know, I did, I noticed there was one architect from the UK who's, who was saying that there is a, there's a company in, in London that want to build a building that includes bamboo and, you know, he was saying it was unheard of before, like 10 years ago. And in my head, I've always thought as bamboo as it, it feels like holidays and it feels like hot countries. I couldn't imagine it somewhere like Canada or even London. So, you know, this is also part of sustainable architecture to enable it to be incorporated in our buildings and urban places around the world is a really exciting prospect. It's going to happen in the next decade and it's not going to look the way that people imagine because it hasn't been imagined yet. I, I wonder whether, I, I remember in this particular, you know, in this documentary, somebody said of you that almost something like it would take someone who's not an architect to dream up these things. Um, well, I know some pretty dynamic and amazing engineers in the world, so I believe it's possible. <laughs> absolutely. And so um, tell me a little bit more about sustainable architecture and I mean we already know why it's important we know that that we don't need to make a case anymore for why sustainability matters but in terms of new ways of living one of the things um you know I'm going to sort of quote what it says on your website that you create these beautiful structures but to imagine a new way of living gracefully within nature and I'd love for you to talk to me a little bit about why that is so important and how you I mean, you've sort of mentioned it a little bit already, but how you ensure that that's what you're doing as you're designing and building. So, so we are um, organic creatures, mm-hmm. right? Organic forms, our bodies are curved. There's no right angles on us. So is it really right that if we lean up against the column of our beloved home that we feel is our protective shell in the world, that that column has right angles? Not really. Um, it's not the friendly, intuitive conclusion. It's the way that architecture is right now is the result of a exciting and, and like complicated conversation that has evolved over the past few hundred years, few thousand years going back. But for most of human existence, the kind of spaces that we found refuge in, that we felt most comfortable in, what comes to mind? like a beautiful river valley, like a cozy hollow, like, I don't know, like there's spaces in nature that to me seem more comforting than the kind of buildings that we typically build. There are some exceptions, right? I love a building that was built a few hundred years ago that has the rough edge of the stone exposed and like the mantelpiece is rounded and worn because it shows, it shows time, it shows weathering, it shows imperfection if you're leaning up against a bamboo pole you're leaning up against a friendly relatable rounded imperfect irregular form that gives you a sense of connection to it and it i think it reminds us that we are connected to it and to ourselves and to nature and to all of it in a way that we've all really gotten ourselves compartmentalized from so sustainability is a weak word to represent totally necessary, absurdly um, confused issue, which is that we are creating a world around us that won't last very long because we're using up the stuff we make it out of and that often poisons us literally along the way. It's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. So um, if you set aside even the past few thousand years of like, civilization-based, ego-based architecture, what would you want to be 
the thing that protected you? What would you want to be sheltering in? What would you, with your wildest imagination and all the skills of all the most poetic songbirds mm -hmm. um, and like inspired like other creatures and which is us, right? Mm -hmm. Humans have the ability to craft and create as part of the natural world. Mm -hmm. um, spaces that could just enable us to, to feel how we want to feel and be who we want to be and remind us of what we need to be reminded of and make us feel like we belong in a way that I don't think architecture does. There's all sorts of interesting intellectual conversations to be had about buildings these days, but I don't know. I don't know about that. I went through art school and we critiqued and analyzed and it was fascinating and exciting, but like, I don't know if that's what I need mm. at the end of the day as a human to do what I need to do in the world and to be how I want to be and to connect with people the way that the way that I could mm -hmm. I wonder about that that's really interesting that's really interesting about connectivity well it's funny I was talking to an architect and he specializes in shelter and I'd never thought of housing different to shelter for me they were the same thing um I'd never thought of shelter rather separate to housing and so even this idea of how we live and and why we're living and how we're building, making buildings, is just a really interesting, it's a new way of thinking. And um, it's stuff that I hadn't, you know, I'm not an architect, I'm a musician, but I have an appreciation for things that inspire me. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting thought. I think it does tie back to what you said about like, we do need outsiders in every field. Not being an architect, I have the advantage of not having been actually properly molded mm -hmm. to be thinking the way that the way that is in the architectural conversation. So in some senses, I'm just naive and oblivious and unsophisticated. But in other senses, I have room to like consider things that um, that's much harder to consider if you're already in the conversation. And mm -hmm. every field, I think, having having cross cross um, pollination among fields is super powerful. Absolutely. wanted to ask you about the work that your father does at Green School Bali and and would yeah would you just tell me a little bit about that and how that's impacted what you do at Abuku? So my dad and stepmom um, founded Green School and they made the commitment really early on um, to build it out of bamboo which was just I guess really aligned with the um, the naming of it they couldn't they couldn't even imagine um, a more sustainable material to build it out of. And because there's an abundance of bamboo in Bali, but, um, and you know, a, a history of people working with it yeah. for more short-term uses and daily, daily simple things all across Bali, like people are craftsmen are familiar with it, but nothing was being made that was um, anything like what we do today mm -hmm. at that time. This was like 12 years ago now, right. 14 years ago, maybe when they started to plan it. And so they really kicked it off by just taking that stand. Fantastic. And were you involved in sort of the design? It's got the, the heart of the school's got this incredible helix that goes in the middle. And it's just really beautiful. Were you involved in the design of that? When the heart of school was being designed, when the entire green school was being designed, I was barely aware of it. I was working in New York in fashion, right. kind of dreaming of how to have a more sustainable career. And my dad um, was dreaming up the campus with the creative director of his team at the time, Aldo Landwer. And mm -hmm. together they came up with, um, with the Helix concept of green school. I think it was initially inspired by a Da Vinci helicopter design. Right. Yeah, dad, dad references a Da Vinci helicopter sketch of a swirling spiral shaped um, thing. And, and so they created one of the first biggest bamboo structures was a three story space um, that they built across the river from Green School initially as like, a, I think they thought it would be a cafeteria restaurant. Mm -hmm. And 
it never became a restaurant, but it has become our design studio. Ibuku's design studio is one of the earliest structures designed and created by dad and Aldo before green school. Interesting. Interesting. It, yeah, it looks quite similar to that Da Vinci sketch overall. Mm-hmm. And then that that spiral concept of that structure, they replicated in, into three into three spirals interconnecting to become the heart of school of green school. What, what I love about what your dad is doing, and it just really made it connected what the work, the work that you do at Ibuku, he talks about this new paradigm for learning and it really is holistic learning. It's, you know, he talks about being local and letting the environment lead and also just children taking ownership of their learning. And it seems from what I've understand of, uh, understood of the work that you do, it's also new paradigms for, for living and, and how we connect with the environment and how we sort of serve the environment rather than the environment serving us. Well, Green School and that core philosophy that he set like really pulled a lot of, a lot of amazing people into its orbit, including like some of us who, although like we resonate with like early childhood education aren't involved in it, but, but like what we most wish for for our kids is perhaps also what we're most missing. And so, so that's a much bigger community of, of people having ideas and making things real in, in ways that, that connect in with that like core feeling of what, what's missing, what do we need for the future? What do our kids need? How do we want to approach things differently? How do we want to think differently? What do we need to, to adjust? What, how do we realign the way we do things fundamentally? Mm. Um, and so all of those things tie in with what I do. I honestly feel like I'm in a constant state of education <laughs> being, <laughs> being learning from all directions I mean it's kind of I think a, a natural thing in entrepreneurship to to feel that way but we're literally using a material that that is that's never been used in this way and defies all of the basic parameters that that most of the design and construction world have decided they require of a building material that they'll use yeah. and we're just we're just trying to wrap our heads around it so it's it's definitely an education that's fantastic. One of the things, um, even just speaking about the future, you said something when we last spoke that really stuck in my mind. Um, you said, you know, you were, we were talking about the future and you said it's not going to look the way people imagine because it hasn't been imagined yet. And I do wonder what, when you think about the future of Ibuku and I guess, would you just flesh out that phrase? Because it's such a powerful thing to say. What, I mean, I'm, there's a lot of different ways to go about thinking about the future one way that that people have done it is like through sci-fi movies mm-hmm. so you'll you'll see um sci-fi movies from like the past century about even the current time and um it never matches because we don't know right so mm-hmm. so we are constantly making assumptions about the state of our current advancement and what that means like what is the ideal that we're reaching for next is it like jet powered bicycles mm-hmm. or not anymore mm-hmm. right like <laughs> i i um i just know that we don't really know what we need next what's possible next what we think is worth doing next how we'll value what next mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk in the world this year about values and like mm-hmm especially in like what was valued what was what was deemed appropriate a century ago that is not okay now mm-hmm. what was deemed what was deemed totally natural in 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 culture a few years ago is now like oh wow you can't say that now you can't do that now yeah and sometimes that's out of out of um mostly that's just out of getting a clearer alignment with like with what we decide as a culture is okay which mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it just it it I mean, I want to say it, it keeps like refining, mm. um, but um, I hope that it keeps refining, like that we just keep digging deeper and understanding better what our core values are. And, and we keep broadening our sense of identity to include, to include more than what we can just relate to in our own little bodies and our own little families mm. and embrace a bigger armful of self and of, of what's worth valuing. And so the problem with our relationship with the natural world has been that we've considered ourselves separate from it. Mm. 
we're all fiddling around all day with whether our nuclear family is like, like just like we've got such a small, a, such a small identification, even like yeah. a sense of nationalism, mm -hmm. um, I think is less than it has, like just, and, and it varies per place, right? But it's, but fundamentally, if we recognized much more commonality and unity with, with other people, if we recognize much more connection and unity with people outside of our own selves, our own immediate families, our own nationalities, we would get to a point where we had to recognize all of humanity and then also the rest of nature. Mm. And I'm not sure where it stops, but what, I, what I'm concerned about is, is really a sense of connection and belonging. So in a future where we've stretched that better, we stretch that more to embrace more, what kind of spaces do we then want to be in and what do we require of them beyond just selfish armor shelter yeah yeah wow. what do those spaces need to do like there's there's some amazing visionaries who already talk about this winter Pauli and william mcdonough and there's people who talk about like the building what if you required a building to do more than just be a shelter that was made of minerals that we're using up like what if it was regenerative what if it had other we're just at the tip of the iceberg is what I'm saying. I don't know what things will look like and do and feel and how they'll all, will, how we'll relate to them, mm. I think is the point also. Right now we relate to most things as how we get to use them. Yeah. Including each other. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Great food for thought. And um, in a weird way, we're going backwards to what really matters, but in a sort of futuristic way. So I just think what you're saying is really interesting. As a side note, I have a, I have a slight obsession with human history, um, okay. which gets funny because it's hard to go back in time to define even when you start calling us human and what we were doing and how we were feeling and thinking then and where we were. Absolutely. <laughs> and whether we related to each other, how. <laughs> well, it's fascinating. It really is. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. And I think, I, I, I don't know about you, but... I think this pandemic, I'm a naturally a bit of an introvert and I've never, I feel like all I do is think at the moment and think with other people and think about how, you know, what kind of world that we're in now do I want to be part of creating? And, and strangely, doing this podcast and thinking a lot and talking with people, it's actually what's happening is it's actually refining my my values even more i'm just trying to work out a way to to do it in an, as an efficient in, in as an efficient and connected way as possible so so it's really interesting what you're saying wonderful yeah i mean all of everything's so interconnected it just we like even in education everything's like so compartmentalized in science like specialization yeah. and it's kind of necessary so you can go deep on things but i don't know there's got to be there's got to be a way to to weave these things together more yeah totally and and we need to i think the world we we need to so but and i think isn't that what you're doing you know it's what you're 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 exploring with your work it's it's what your father is doing and you know in new modes of education because the systems a lot of the systems that we have i think just they're proving to not be working anymore so we need people that are just thinking well how can we do this differently you know so so thank you you're welcome so i i like to ask all my guests what lessons they have learned that we can learn from the idea being that sharing knowledge and sharing some of our story helps helps the person that's you know coming along either behind us or alongside us and so and some people have said quite personal things some people have said things like taking risks or um, they wish they'd had the courage to do stuff that they wanted to do all along or being true to themselves and other people it's it's less personal it's just um you know um, get the right team around you or um, ask the right questions. So there's no right or wrong answer f uh, to this. It's just more um, about, yeah, sharing knowledge. This was a struggle for us because in being innovative and groundbreaking and also being in a place where 
there isn't a strong culture in Bali of like um, artistic ownership. Traditionally in Bali, it's a communal participation in an art form that that is in the service of a temple or a or a palace. And there isn't so much a sense culturally traditionally of like this is my individual creation, this is my artistic property. And so everything that happens here has a sense of a ripple effect and what we've done really has. So there's a lot of people working with bamboo in Bali and now more and more around the world inspired by us. And so in one sense that's great. Bamboo is being um, Bamboo is, is an amazing resource and it should be used around the world. But the challenge is when it isn't being taken up the next rung. What I want to see is people out in the world creating the next amazing contextual way of using that kind of bamboo in that place for that purpose that in turn I can be proud of and inspired by rather than um, imitation, replication, without the grounding in the actual skills and process that went into creating the original. Mm -hmm. I want to see where this song is sampled in a way that I'm so excited about, but not um, in a way that feels like, um, like, like nothing's been added. Mm -hmm. I want to see it go up the rungs of the ladder. And I, and I want to be inspired by other creators around the world working with bamboo in new ways. That's a really interesting thought. Um, do you think what you're excited by is, um, or what you're desiring is to be inspired by people that are taking the, some of the work you guys have pioneered and taking it to the next level? So I'd be interested to know what kind of things are actually inspiring you? What feeds, what feeds you? when you're creating? I mean, I go through Instagram and Pinterest like everyone else and like enjoy, you know, certain images, um, especially where other materials are used to create shapes that, shapes and spaces that I, that I like resonate with. Um, but I, and there's obviously like, there's obviously amazing, amazing architects in the world who have worked with natural materials um but i wonder i really wonder about the approach when you're working with a material i feel like often the material is being used in service mm -hmm. of a design idea rather than a brilliant designer being in service of the expression of a material in a way that can connect that material with with people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everything is based on us. We're self-centered, fundamentally. Um, we are, we're the only self-expression of nature that we know about that can talk about itself. <laughs> <laughs> right? We're, like we're part of nature and we're able to talk about it and to like reflect on it. So we're important. And what we do to the rest of nature is obviously very important if we want to continue to have a natural system that lets us breathe mm. and swim and you know enjoy but all of these things are so interconnected so to to be to be an artist obsessed with creating something at the expense of that material damaging their future like humanity's future like breathing capacity is like just fundamentally illogical mm. But the whole way that human civilization and thought and intellect has developed is to, I guess, compartmentalize in a way that lets us forget that. So like, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very, very interesting way of thinking. I mean, I know, for example, they talk about um, in there's this new business sort of term they talk about impact capital that even the way we measure businesses can't just be the bottom line but it has to be how the how these businesses impact not only people but the environment and to think the way you're thinking which is actually opposite which is how do these things how do we serve these things rather than how does everything serve us is a really interesting yeah it's an interesting way of thought thinking and I wonder whether 
what will be born out of people thinking in those terms I don't know. I wonder. Yeah, yeah, I'm. Yeah, and only time, only time will tell. But I like to um, ask. End every episode by asking, "What music are you listening to right now?" So, my son is five, Mm -hmm. and he is um, like really discovering what he's into, and he's really not able to like be into anything that he's not into. So he likes the colors black and blue. And he likes his hair long, and he likes to listen specifically to to loud electric guitar music. Really? And so I've really been enjoying listening to, like, um, all kinds of loud electric guitar music on the way to school in the morning. (laughs) That's so... What a unique taste. Giving me, like... A understanding um, of something that I never had any interest in and so I think what listening to to like loud intense music does for him is like you just watch his face and he's like he's like getting into it and he's zoning out in it and he's like moving parts of his body and this is just like totally intuitive like impulsive he's really upset when we play other music that he doesn't like <laughs> like it like it hurts him and like i don't want to overindulge this kind of craziness but at the same time like i respect that something's going on for him and the listening is it's doing something in him like i think it's it's reassuring to him that there's this loud intensity that can exist out there because it must reflect something that he's struggling with and i feel it when i'm listening to it too i'm just like like it, it puts order and and harmony i guess to a certain extent to the madness and and it's so cool because I never would have thought that out for myself. Mm. And before becoming a parent, I also like would have, oh, my son's not going to listen to that, you know? Yeah. Um, but like you roll with it, you roll with what's needed in the moment. And so I just like started like searching for songs and like I'd play them and he'd love them or hate them. And so we've got ourselves some some Led Zeppelin and some Daft Punk and we've like got Steve Vai and Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like I, I am <laughs> seeing a whole new like perspective on the world. That is, I'm, I'm just trying to, I mean, I find that fascinating as a musician, like why people like what they like. And, but I, where did he hear it first to even be like, this is what I love and respond to it so passionately? So, Actually, I'm not sure where he first picked it up, but but he was something played somewhere. I don't know if it was like even in some sort of like app that he was playing that had different instruments in it, but he picked up on it. So at one point on the way to school, I was like, I want to listen to music on the way to school. And like, he always shuts down what I decide to play. So let me just ask him. I was like, do you have an idea of what you want to listen to? Hmm. And he said, electric guitar music, loud, no voices. Wow. <laughs> and so I searched that on Spotify and I found some songs that he was excited about. And since then he has broadened. If there's if there are vocals, like he can get into some of those too. If there's other instruments, he's also like getting into it. So he's he's broadening his um tolerance. <laughs> Extraordinary. And does he does he have a guitar at home? So he made himself a little I don't even know what you'd call it it has some strings on it it's from a shoebox and it's quite sturdy he found a few pieces of scrap bamboo to like lift up the elastic band strings so that they would strum and um and my husband took up playing just an acoustic guitar recently which is a beautiful thing to have around and so the two of them are 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 working a little bit on their skills I (laughs) love it which isn't obviously electric guitar but still somehow is works for him at the moment a string well maybe he will your son will be the one that's pioneering new uses of bamboo in um you know electric guitars that are made out of bamboo that have a really really unique sound because it's a hollow kind of thing (laughs) that's amazing i didn't expect that so thank you very much it's there's so many surprises in the world these days you just got to be ready to be fascinated by them I think absolutely well Ella Hardy thank you for your time today okay 
Thank you very Thank much. You. Have a good day. Thank you so much to Ella Rahadi. I love talking to people from different creative disciplines. So much of what Ella said resonated with me and how I approach songwriting. What she said about wanting to see people work with bamboo in new ways so that she too could be inspired, I feel the same way about music. When I see musicians pushing the boundaries of what's possible musically, it challenges and inspires me to practice more or re-examine how I compose and write songs. It's the spark that's necessary to drive my creative and musical imagination. If you haven't seen it yet, please watch the series Home on Apple TV and Ella's episode on Bali. It really will take your breath away and expand that bit of your brain called Take the Limits Off. You can also learn more about her company Ibuku on their website. And for more detailed information and the opportunity to learn the craft of working with bamboo, head to Bamboo U, which is led by Ella's brother. You can also find out more about the work Ella's dad does with the Green School. What a family. All details are in the podcast blurb. And of course, you know, Holding Up the Ladder is available on numerous platforms. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. You can also donate to the podcast. Just click the link below. And you can also follow us on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore and Instagram at Holding Up the Ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week, we're joined by a return guest who featured on the bonus episode on money and the music industry composer, producer, and dub lab radio host, Shruti Kumar. And I'm teaching more music production now, and that will go into mixing and more tech stuff. But I approached engineering from a very outsider perspective. I never went to formal audio engineering school. So anything I do on my computer or in producing is by ear. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, it comes from sort of the privilege of my experience that I do trust my ear. But even then, it took so long for me to get to a place where I'm like, I know this isn't conventionally the right way to mix this or use this tool, but I like it and I trust my ear. Until next time.